Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast and our live event at McAfee School of Theology. On this episode, we'll be interviewing Dr. Slater and introducing you to our friends in Atlanta who run Holy Smokes. I hope you enjoy this and thank you so much for listening. So so before we transition uh, and have Dr. Tom Slater up here, I want to give uh, just a minute or two to a, a current Doctor of Ministry student and also a McAfee grad who's doing some really cool work in the community that you all might actually be really interested in joining with him. Um, Christian Smith, if, if you want to come up here and talk a little bit about what you're doing with Holy Smokes, let, let, the, people, let the people know about the good work you're doing. Yeah. Thanks, Nathan. I'll stand up here. Good evening, everybody. As Nathan said, my name is Christian Smith. I am a McAfee alum, started the doctoral program in the fall, so all the reading is starting to pick up, so everybody please pray for me. I have like seven books to read by May, and I don't know how I'm going to do it. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so I'm the uh, pastor of the Faith Community, which is a a church start um, that we, we started back in 2018. And we had this vision to just create these different groups that would help to reach people in different areas because the people that we're called to reach aren't likely to come into our church because I believe that they would benefit from what we have, but they have some serious issues with the church. Um, So we decided what we would do is take what we're doing into the marketplace. So we... uh, partnered with Greg DeLoach and McAfee, and we started a movement called Holy Smokes. And Holy Smokes is a gathering of cigar enthusiasts to discuss life, faith, and theology. So the monthly gathering was the first part of that movement. Um, And then we did a second part of that movement was we created merch so you can get apparel now. And the third part of that movement is incredibly exciting because when we started Holy Smokes in April of last year, every month inevitably new people will come and check it out and just kind of see what it is. And the funny thing is I thought we would attract a lot of cigar smokers, but in actuality we just attracted a lot of people who were really intrigued by the fact that someone would combine cigars and spirituality. So we'd have like at least four or five people at every gathering who were like, oh, I don't really smoke. I just wanted to come see this. Um, So every time somebody came, they would say, oh, my God, you got to put this on the Internet. Like people need to see this. And we would say, no, we can't like put a camera in people's faces here because this is a very vulnerable space. People are very transparent. They're having conversations that they normally wouldn't have in public, so we don't want to make people uncomfortable in that way. Uh, but as it kept going and we kept getting that you know, comment suggested to us over and over again, we decided to pick, select people from the Holy Smokes movement and start a podcast. So April, we launched the third part of the Holy Smokes movement, which is the Holy Smokes visual podcast. And for all intents and purposes, it's pretty much a McAfee uh, production. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
at, you know, as I already said, I'm a McAfee alum, current McAfee doctoral student. Um, Greg Deloach, Dr. Deloach is going to be a part of the podcast. Um, Tiger Gibson, right over here, wave your hand. He's going to be a part of the podcast. Uh, many of you know Grayson Hester. He's a part of the podcast. Nikki Hardiman, part of the podcast. So we have a, a cast of about eight people um, who are going to filter in and out from episode to episode. So I want you all to look forward to it. We start, we launched season one in April. We got eight episodes. We're talking about cigars and spirituality, profanity, gender, sexual orientation, biblical authority, sex, and more sex. Like, we're talking about everything. <laughs> no, we seriously dedicated more than one episode to sex. So please, please do check it out. And if you would like to be a part of this movement, if you would like to invest in the work that we're doing, there's a way you can do that. Like I said, Holy Smokes was, is an extension of the faith community, which is the church that I started, which was birthed out of my experience at McAfee. So if you want to invest in what we're doing, you can go to patreon.com backslash TFCATL. Patreon.com backslash TFCATL. And you can invest $5 a month into the work that we're doing to help get it going. Greg Deloach has on a member shirt. I love it. Yes. I love it. I paid him to do that. Um, yeah, we just want you to like be a part of it and engage. And we meet every second Tuesday of the month at Highland Cigar, which is right down the street at five o'clock. So please do, next month is International Women's Month, so our topic will have something to do with the ladies, so please do come out. We have two ladies who are part of our cast, so thank you. Thank you so much for being a part. Thank you. That's so exciting, and we'll have to do a Brew and Smoke podcast. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now everybody is... Uh, about to gear up for some f famous, perhaps infamous lyrics from uh, perhaps a song you heard many, many moons ago. And we're going to hum it together, sing it together, raise our glasses. I wish we'd all been ready. So are we real? Oh, we want to do the whole thing. Wow. Yeah. I got to say... It, it, <laughs> In preparation for uh, this next guest, not only did I get to read the book, but I got to relive some childhood, not fantasies, but nightmares. So <laughs> Dr. Thomas Slater is going to join us next talking about his book, Revelation, uh, as, as Civil Disobedience. And so if you haven't gotten a chance to read it, I highly recommend it as well. Fantastic. And um, so if you're out there listening to the Brew Theology Podcast, don't worry. Don't be scared. If you're a preacher and you're listening, don't again, don't worry. Don't be scared. It's not as scary as you think. Again, Dr. Thomas Slater, come on up and join us. So Dr. Slater is the, uh, is this on right now? We good? All right. No, it says it is. It says it's on? Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, is professor of New Testament and literature. So on this book that we're going to be talking about, Revelation, for many listeners out there, many of you out there, when we hear the word apocalypse, 
we think of lots of things. We think of uh, Armageddon. We think of the Middle East. And, of course, America joining forces with Israel. We think of uh, maybe perhaps Kevin, uh, not Kevin Spacey, uh, Nicolas Cage. Nick, Nick I'm always Kevin Spacey running through my head doing this really great epic acting role, The Mark of the Beast, The End of the World, The Destruction of All Things. And, and yet when you unveil Revelation this ancient text written to this Asian church, churches, I should say, in the mm-hmm. first century, you have a very unique perspective. Uh, so can you just start off with um, your, your perspective in comparison, contrast to the one that most people grew up with and why that's important, interpreting that text today moving forward? Well, I think my perspective is somewhat special, but not as, not as special as most people would uh, think, because within the academy, People have been saying a bit of what I say in the book since uh, the 70s when Mitchell Reddish wrote his dissertation at Southern Seminary. Um, When I was completing my dissertation at uh, King's College London, I was reading each chapter, and I said, okay, this is fine, move on. I'd read the next chapter, this is fine, move on. And I, I read every chapter and reviewed them, and then I sat down and read the whole thing. When I read the whole thing, I realized that there was this recurring theme throughout each chapter, that we defeat evil through our witness. And I immediately realized this was just the opposite of the Left Behind movement on on one side, and it was completely opposite of uh, what we'll call, for lack of a better term, liberal Christian scholarship in the academy on the other side who said the, the book was too violent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was under some time constraints because the university was expecting me to get this thing done in four years. And the, the clock was ticking. So I didn't have time to go through and rewrite the whole dissertation. Uh, who wants to rewrite 100,000 words in a few weeks? So I went back through and sprinkled it into the dissertation in key places so that at least I could say at some point in time, I said this and now I want to pick up on it. Well, in the interim, nobody picked up on it. Uh, So uh, eventually I was able to convince people at Abington that this was a good idea and here we are. Mm -hmm. Here we are. That's awesome. Well, one of the things that you talk about in your book is the, the slain lamb image. And you say that it occurs 28 times in 27 passages from Revelation 5 to 22 and 11 separate contexts. You say that it is significant that the slain lamb replaces the lion, a traditional image found in scriptures. Why is this imperative? And what does this do to the trajectory of the first century church? Oh, that's, that's an excellent question. What, what I discovered in um, reading Revelation to write the dissertation was that Revelation was not as much unlike the rest of the New Testament as people yeah. say. For example, Christology covers, colors everything in the New Testament, and Christ dying colors everything. The Christology of Christians is distinctively different. If we looked at the Christology, let's say for Second Esdras, where the lion comes out of the forest and the lion defeats his enemies, the lion is the symbol for the Messiah. But the lion is replaced in Revelation 
with the slain lamb. Not just the lamb, but a slain lamb. And just as Christology colors everything in the New Testament, the slain lamb colors everything in the book of Revelation. So how do we defeat evil? We defeat evil the same way the lamb defeated evil, by witnessing faithfully to the word of God. So when you discover that, then you realize, oh, this is a very different book. Yeah, so we're these, to be these faithful witnesses, bearing witness, not to, to be people who put others on crosses, but to bear them. So in Revelation mm-hmm. 14, same image, there's that reference with this army in heaven. So that famous 144,000 people, and most of us may recall the saints go marching in, and we think this is a, like a platoon story about to happen, things are about to go down, but you have a different picture when you interpret this text. So can you help us unpack that? Well, yes. Can I tell a story first? Always. Absolutely. Okay. I'm, I'm defending my thesis, and my in Britain at that time, at King's, you had an internal examiner who was not your major professor, and you had an external examiner who was from another university altogether. And if your professor came in the room, he or she could not speak. You had to be able to defend this thing all by yourself. They asked me a question about this same passage, and I realized by the way they asked the question that I didn't know the answer. So I said to them, I don't know. I really, really struggle with this mightily. And one of the examiners said, yes, you did. And you got it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And the answer uh, is simply this. The 144,000 is symbolic of a perfect church. It is symbolic of an army that follows the Lamb that never engages in battle. So how does this army defeat evil? It defeats evil through its witness. And when you go to chapter 19, beginning with verse 11, you find this army again. And once again, the army never engages in battle. The Messiah defeats the enemies of God and the church through by means of a sword through his mouth. And most people say, okay, we got some really violent stuff going on here. And my question is, okay, how many people you see walking around with swords coming out of their mouths? Circus people. (laughs) Those are the only people. The imagery is symbolic. It is not to be taken literally. The sword symbolizes the power of the Christian word to defeat evil. So in no instance does Jesus engage in this uh, a a battle in the sense that we've got these regiments of people on this side and uh, regiments of Christians on the other side. So the Christian church church speaks the same way, uh, speaks to power through the same truth, the same, it's a a way. It's not just a spoken word. Yes, it's, uh, it's both the spoken word and the faith to stand by the word you have spoken, even unto death. As, in, as it says in Revelation 12, evil that Satan was defeated in heaven and the people who defeated him, defeated him through their witness, even unto death. Now that is a very, very, very powerful word. And by the way, the original title was Speaking Truth to Power. 
But the editors at Abbott thought, no, no, that's not good enough. <laughs> so here we are. Yeah. Revelation there, of civil disobedience. Yes. That really calls to mind, um, I can't help but the, see the images of the civil rights movement and yes. um, discussions in our current era about passive resistance, about nonviolent resistance. And so do you see what you see here in Revelation as, a, as an example for us of how to resist those powers that are out of control. Uh, yes, I do. And it, we, we call it passive resistance, uh, but it is not passive. It takes a, a whole lot of faith yeah. and a whole lot of courage to resist uh, uh, civilly a government which has all of the power. It takes a great deal of faith to be able to stand up to that government regardless of the outcome. Yeah. yeah. We need reminded of that in today's world, I think. Yes, yes. I wouldn't have been able to see this in the text if I had not been a baby boomer, African-American, and born and raised in the South. Yeah. Yeah, social, social location means everything. I, I know that in the academy, people say methodology means everything, but social location means everything. Example number one, we've got... Carl Bart, James Cone. What do they have in common? Most people would say nothing. James Cone is a Neo-Bartian. But when we think of James Cone, we don't think of him as a Neo-Bartian. We think of him as the father of black liberation theology. Yeah. Social location means everything. If, method if methodology were all that important, surely that would have been a liberation theologian between Bart and cold. <laughs> yeah. And there was not. <laughs> there were a lot of people between Bart and Cone, but none of them were liberation theologians. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go off script, Ryan. You're going to kill me later. Um, so if you would like to answer this, and if I ask it wrong, correct me. But a lot of our listenership on our podcast is white and often quite privileged. What would you like to say to us about how we need to resist and how we need to wow. take this information and make it real in the world that we live in? And if you don't want to answer, I can cut it out and we can keep going where we were. <laughs> <laughs> what the book says is that power and privilege corrupt. And you must use it judiciously and humbly. If we read the New Testament carefully, we, we should understand that the Antichrist, as it says in 1 John, aren't unattractive people. They aren't people that don't have any appeal. They are attractive people who have appeal, who say to us what we want our leaders to say to us and not what we want, what we need our leaders to say to us. Yeah. Let me put this in a different context. I'm inspired by Rob. If you live in Europe, every European capital will tell you that they're the engine that keeps Europe going. And if it's not the Germans saying it, they all are liars. When when East Germany and West Germany merged, 
in the 90s, East Germany was a struggling economy. By 2000, Germany had the strongest economy in Europe. One of the strongest economies on the planet. They did it by sacrificing. Whenever a country in Europe has financial trouble, in the European community, has financial trouble, if the Germans don't sign off on it, it, they don't get no money. And they all say, give us money, and the Germans say, make sacrifices. You people over there in Greece, that 40% of your population does not pay taxes. Collect the taxes, make sacrifices, and in a few years, your economy will be strong, and they don't do it. Unless you're able to make some sacrifices, you can't make progress. You can't always move from where you are to where you want to be smoothly. It's a struggle involved. And a, a lot of people in our communities do not want to make sacrifices. They just simply don't. Uh, I'll stop right there. <laughs> No, thanks. That, that sounds familiar. It sounds biblical. A guy named Jesus may have talked about that, too. To be faithful witnesses, perhaps we should sacrifice. You know, I have read that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, this, this, one is a, this one's troubling for me, and this is something that when I read Revelation, it's bothersome maybe to others as well out there. So if God is inseparable to Jesus, and there's this oneness there that we are to share in the risen Christ and bearing witness and being these faithful agents. And yet we see in the scripture that God brings out God's wrath and punishes God, you know, these enemies out there. Is this a paradox that we see in scripture that, that Jesus is a slain lamb, that we become slain lambs, but then God gets off the hook and kind of in a way seems seemingly, I don't know if it seems that way to you, um, is almost like Imperial Rome. They get to take on the same posture that Rome took upon the early church. So how, how do you interpret that? And maybe I'm reading it wrong. Perhaps I, my whole life I've been reading Revelation wrong, and now I'm still reading it wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh, when I said mm-hmm, I didn't mean that you're reading it wrong. <laughs> well, I know I read most of the Bible wrong, according to many of my friends. Um, this is, this is a, a really good question. One of the problems a lot of uh, New Testament scholars have with the book of Revelation is that they say it's a very violent book. And when they say that, they mean the judgment scenes in the book of Revelation are very violent. And Brian Blunt, who's also an African-American, says, no, this isn't violence, this is judgment. You know, uh, it's kind of like... Uh, what Barry Goldwater, the FBI did a sting in circa 1980. They got a lot of congressmen and they got a senator and they filmed, they literally had the senator in the room stuffing his pockets with money. And 60 Minutes asked Goldwater, do you think the sting was wrong? He said, there's no problem if you don't take the money. You know, there's no problem. You don't go to jail if you don't take the money. Judgment is a part of human life. And we think judgment is a good thing until we look in the Bible. You know, how many people are fans of the Houston Astros today? (sighs) 
I'm going to stay quiet on that one. <laughs> uh, when we find judgment in the Bible, we have problems with it. And I found that most of the people who have problems with it, their social location is somewhere else. It's not where I'm sitting. You know, somebody comes up to you and beats you over the head. You know, my first thought is, well, I can forgive this person, but let me call the sheriff after I forgive him. <laughs> Not so much that I, for me, but I've got a daughter and I don't want him to beat her over the head. And I've got a cousin, I don't want that cousin to be beat over the head. I've got a friend and I don't want that friend to be beat over the head. So we got to put this person someplace where they won't do that anymore. You know, punishment is a part of life. I'm going to stop there. Okay. I'll elaborate later. We can have, I want to continue that one, though. That's the, yeah. Okay. We don't, with time and all, I'm going to keep going, but okay. I still, yeah, I still have a hard time reading that one, but I appreciate that. Sure. So you bring up in your book the classic shoe brand Nike, otherwise yeah. known as the Greek goddess Nikkei in your book. Speaking of victory, let me quote you here. Victory through suffering then becomes the model for Asians, Christians' behavior during their own regional repression. You say this often throughout the book. How does this kind of victory manifest itself both inside the context of the seven churches and outside this letter in the world today? Okay, let's take inside the context of the seven churches. It manifests itself first and foremost in Jesus' victory. And then it manifests itself in the way in which the word uh, Nike, victory, or Nikao, uh, to conquer, is is transformed to mean to conquer through your witness, not through arms, but solely through your witness. Just like the word um, martyr, originally meant someone who bore witness uh, in a legal context, a trial. But now when we think of a martyr, it's, it's, almost the, it's basically the same word as in Greek. Now when we think of a martyr, we think of someone who died for the faith. That's because of the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. It's not because Socrates used it that way. <laughs> it's because John used it that way. Yeah. Uh, and then we have Antipas, who died for the faith, who's one of the blessed ones. We've got uh, Revelation 6, 9, those people under the altar, the fifth seal, who ask, Lord, how long will our deaths go unavenged? Now, if you're in a position of privilege and you've never been denied something because of your religious beliefs or for other reasons, then you don't understand this passage. But if you're not in a position of privilege, but in a position of having been deprived, then you understand this passage all too well. How was that? Yeah, that was great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so Revelation 21.7, John states this. He says, those who emerge victorious will inherit these things. I will be their God, and they will be my sons and daughters. So what are these things? So what is this hope and this inheritance for those that endure suffering and death? Wow, does it really say sons and daughters? Well, that's what I read. You're reading the NRSP, aren't you? 
it better say daughters. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying that that was. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying that that was a bad thing. Um, <laughs> if you look at all of the promises in Revelation two and three, uh, all of the promises symbolically mean that there will be an unbroken relationship between uh, the church of God and God. And that this relationship will be in the new heaven and the new earth. And this is what chapter 21 and chapter 22 are all about. Communicating to the community what this unbroken relationship will be like. And that's the essence of all the promises in the book. So this is, a, this is a present reality that is yet to come. Hmm. Been hanging out with process theologians. Us? Hey, we're only the never. second number two theological podcast on the internet. The internet is number one. Um, in a way, <laughs> is it, in a sense, in the book of Revelation, the, the answer to your question is yes. You ready for some Left Behind? Yeah. All right, here we go. We've got a quote for you. Oh, and it also mentions Thief in the Night, which was traumatic to me and still is. Um, I remember the church I was sitting in when I saw it, and I still have nightmares about the guillotine scene. How many, how many saw that, the original? Not, not Left Behind, but Thief in the Night. Oh, you gotta go see it. Oh, y'all. Late at night when it's stormy by Super yourself. Super creepy. <laughs> it, it will okay. change Revelation for you. Um, so the Left Behind series is a published set of fictionalized books that depict Christians as armed warriors fighting the forces of evil. A careful reading of the apocalypse shows that the Left Behind series is entirely incorrect. Revelation tells Christians to be witnesses, not warriors. Christians defeat evil through their steadfast witness and trust God for the ultimate vindication. In other words, Christians are to put their faith in God, not in guns. What do you say to Christians who are policemen and those in the military whose jobs requires them to bear arms? And what if somebody breaks into someone's house and threatens one's family? Wow. Ryan did this. That's, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I would say to them that um, that is a slightly different circumstance. Yeah. And that um, it carries a, a different responsibility with it than witnessing because the primary concern for people in the military and uh, policemen is either to defend or to protect. And they are really in different roles than what's being envisioned in the book of Revelation. Now, there are other apocalyptic works written roughly the same time that were basically the prototypes were left behind. For example, the War Scroll and the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the War Scroll, I can see a lot of people out there nodding their heads. They, they must have read the War Scroll. That's what insomnia does to you. In, in, in the War Scroll, you have a human being from the Qumran community, and you have an angel, a human being and an angel, and they're all warriors, and they go to battle. But that ain't what we got in Revelation. 
No, you don't have scenes like that in Revelation at right. all. Did I answer your question? I think so. Okay. Yeah. So for, for those out there listening and out there right there in the audience, they want to preach from Revelation now. They're excited to get your book. That's, the num- <laughs> that's their number one book. And, but if they're going to, because you say they shouldn't be scared, that they should preach from it, and they just need to spend some time in it. That's what you said. Yeah. What other recommendations do you have for those practitioners out there? They're going to do a six-week series on Revelation starting, let's just say, this summer. It's a good time to do it. People are on vacation, so in case it's bombs, you're good. And if you're an associate pastor, even better. (laughs) Um, Wow. In my intro classes, I would routinely tell my students that when we get to Revelation, I hope to present it to you in such a way that you'll be able to read it after 10 o'clock at night and go to sleep. That's awesome. And I've been fairly successful with that. Um, my book on Revelation is, is what we call a monograph. It only looks at one aspect of Revelation. There are other books out there that are more uh, extensive. A really good book for uh, Bible studies and for preachers is uh, Pablo Richard's Apocalypse. It's a, a commentary that he wrote it's about the same size as my book, and he wrote it in the midst of a basically Bible study group in Central America. It's a wonderful little book. He has some insights that the big books don't have. Um, that's a good one. Um, then there's Adela Collins' small commentary on Revelation, which would be really helpful for pastors. It's, uh, it's a little bit dated, but it still has some insights. Um, Perhaps the best resource is the commentary in the New Interpreter's Bible. I think it was written by Chris Rowland. Uh, he teaches at Oxford. One of the great things about British scholarship. Yeah. Gosh, gosh, are you surprised I said that? No. <laughs> One of the great things about British scholarship is that it's usually not uh, faddish. It's usually very traditional and it usually doesn't lean too far this way, uh, one way or the other. And uh, it is usually attempting to actually uh, interpret the scripture within the context of scripture and not so much within the context of contemporary religious studies, which is, I think, a strength. All right, so we have a big one to end with. When is the church universal at its worst, and when is at it, it at its best? Oh, gosh. When is it at its worst, and when is it at its best? Gee, I have so much to choose from. <laughs> um, I think the church universal is at its worst when it gets in bed with the government. And this is not just an American problem, this is a human problem. Before the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russian Orthodox Church was so secretive that people in Russia, in the Russian government, did not know who the leader of the church was. Now, the Russian Orthodox Church is basically a religious mouthpiece of the government. And you find this repeatedly. 
around the world. Yeah. And, and it happens not just with Christians, but it, it also happens in places like Israel and Iran, uh, where religion and politics are not together. They have melted into one another. And uh, that's, that's always problematic. Because then you say you do stuff in the name of God. And God said, I didn't tell you to do that. <laughs> uh, when is the church universal at its best? The church universal is at its best when it does something that's extremely uncomfortable. One of my colleagues, Denise Massey, helped me to understand the difference between visions and dreams. She, and, and she did this by explaining dreams to me. Some of the students here might have taken her dreams therapy class. She said, well, well, there's at least one back there. She said, dreams come from deep down within us, and they are expressions of our hopes or our fears. And that was very helpful. Since she told me this, I rarely have a dream that I don't remember the next day hmm. and that I don't understand the meaning behind the dream the next day. Then I realized that visions are different. Visions come from God. And sometimes the vision makes us uncomfortable. In fact, most of the time the vision makes us uncomfortable yeah. because it's something we don't want to do because it won't be to our social advantage or something we don't want to do because we're just out and out scared. Yes. And, and when the church does something that's to its disadvantage, I think that's when the church is at its best. Thank you very much. Sure. Appreciate you. So we are going to... Yeah, we have a bit of time left. We're going to take... Yeah, we have about a good 15 minutes before we need to start closing it down. So any questions, come on up front, line up. And while you're at it, do you need a drink, by the way? You're up here without a drink? Anybody want to get the good doctor a drink? I'm, I'm good, thank okay. you. <laughs> <laughs> come on up and ask some not-so-scary questions. Dr. Slater, we've, we've not had the pleasure of meeting. I'm a first-year MDiv student at McAfee. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've heard you sort of pick up some themes uh, in, in the book of Revelation, and I think you mentioned that your rendering is indeed a monograph, so taking one aspect. Mm -hmm. But if, if someone asked you, what is the story of the book of Revelation? What are the, what's the narrative? Mm -hmm. Where if someone wants a guide through the book, where we start, what happens in the middle, and where we end up, what would you say is the story of that book? I would say that way of looking at Revelation is misguided. There is no straight narrative as we understand in the Gospels. The book of Revelation tells you the story. And then it tells you the story again. And then it tells you the story the third time. That's what the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are all about. And as it goes from seals to trumpets to bowls, it, you should notice that it intensifies every time. And then in between those numbered series, there are visions. Adela Collins says there are seven visions, seven unnumbered visions in between those 
the, the numbered series. Uh, I haven't, I don't know if I agree with her or not, but still there are visions there and the visions repeat themselves. Like you got the 144,000 in chapter seven, you got the 144,000 in chapter 14, then you move to chapter 19, it doesn't say 144,000, but believe me, it's the same group. <laughs> so, you know, it repeats itself. The book just constantly repeats itself, and that's part of the problem with understanding the book. Dr. Slater, good to see you. Thank you. Uh, good to see you. Yes, sir. So, my preaching um, has shifted a lot as a pastor. I, I enjoy preaching in a different way when I wasn't actually pastoring the people I was preaching to. It's a totally different ballgame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me why, as a pastor, I should preach Revelation? Because no matter where you pastor, your congregation is going to need a word of hope sometimes. If you're, if you're pastor of a downtown church, something is going to happen in that church where people will wonder, okay, what's going on? And the pastor's going to need a word of hope. And that's what there are, if I can use a technical term, gugobs of words of hope in the book of Revelation. Yes. Um, chapter 7. John, who are these people dressed in white robes, and from where have they come? These are the ones who've come through the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And then it says that God himself will wipe their tears away. Man, I'm almost ready to preach right now. <laughs> Oh, like, if somebody just said, well, <laughs> you know, all I need now is somebody to run their fingers across that keyboard. Well, uh huh. And, uh, you know, there are many passages like that. If we read the book looking for a word of hope, we will find it there. If we read the book looking to be afraid, unfortunately, we've missed the good part. Uh, the gospel is in the book of Revelation. People just haven't looked for it. Sure. Let me piggyback on that just a wee bit. Within the Christian tradition, many outstanding uh, folks have said that Jesus or the gospel wasn't in Revelation. And the reason they have said that primarily is because of their social location. Let me talk about Martin Luther while, while we're here. Martin Luther said that Jesus wasn't in the book of Revelation. This is the same. No, I'm not going to share all of that. Anyway, he was dead wrong because he had aligned himself with the princes of Germany and not with the poor of Germany. And because he had made that allegiance, he could not see 
what God was saying to the churches in Revelation and what they might have been saying to the churches in Germany. In fact, if he had read Revelation more closely, he would have realized that that was a resource for what he wanted to do in the Reformation. Mm -hmm. I do pick on Martin Luther King just a wee bit in Christ and Community, my first book, when I said that if he had read the book of Revelation more closely, he would have found all the ammunition he needed for the Civil Rights Movement. Yes. Yeah. Well, say that one more time slowly because people need to hear that. If he had read the book of Revelation more closely, he would have found all the ammunition he needed for the Civil Rights Movement. Thank you. Yes. Any other thoughts, questions out there? I'll end with the off-the-wall question. Okay. So, given the climate crisis that we're facing and the apocalyptical themes that we see in the book of Revelation, how do, do you see a way that those connect, or is that overreaching what the text is doing? Uh, there is a, a, a similarity in that the world as we know it has changed so drastically that something has ended. When I was a boy, I used to love summertime. Yeah. Go out and play all day long. My mother would have to call me in. And I noticed in the 80s that it was much hotter than it was when I was growing up in the 60s. And my dad noticed it too. Um, the world as, as I've known it has changed ecologically. And there is an apocalyptic element to that. There also is an apocalyptic element to the, the thirst for hope in American society. Everybody is hoping for something new. Everybody, it seems 70% of America is looking for a new age. And 40% of those people vote for Donald, will vote for Donald Trump. 30% of those people are going to vote for Bernie Sanders. And they're going to do this come hell or high water. And it's a, it's a thirst for hope, thirst for a new age. And that in itself is apocalyptic. Well, I hear also that I got three minutes, so I'm going to do it. Um, I hear you're also a big sci-fi fan. This is true. That was, that was my wife. And, and that was one of my students who, who endured me for many years. All right, so we often ask the question, who's your favorite theologian? I want to know who's your favorite sci-fi writer. Oh, without a doubt, Ursula Le Guin, the late Ursula Le Guin. This woman could write stories like nobody else on the planet. Uh, they were just beautifully constructed stories. I go back to them time and time again. Uh, reading her is one of the most wonderful experiences. Discovering her was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. That's awesome. Thank and you. where should we start? Uh, in today's climate, I would start with Left Hand of Darkness. It's a story about a man who's uh, an ambassador from 
a solar system like ours, and he goes to this planet where in the fourth week of every month, a person's gender may change. So it was possible for an individual to be a father and a mother in one's lifetime. And the point of the story is, he, as, as a foreigner on this planet, he encounters prejudice because his gender doesn't change. Yes. yes. All right. And he, he has to be assisted by someone on the planet who may lose his life for assisting him to help him escape. I'm going to go get my Kindle and download it. I think you enjoy it. So we want to thank uh, Dr. Thomas Slater for being with us here tonight. (laughs) If you haven't read it again, this is Revelation as Civil Disobedience. Pick it up or is it on? It's on Amazon, I'm sure. It is. Yeah. Along with my other books. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to end this by plugging all kinds of things. So we want to thank, uh, again, McAfee School of Theology and Brew Theology together to unite yes. doing this awesome thing. If you're a seminary student that's listening out there or you're curious, I would encourage you, if you're in the South, Atlanta is a cool city. Mm-hmm. And these people at McAfee are really cool people. So, uh, you know, talk. Nathan's sitting right in front of me, the admissions guy, right? Greg's over here, the, the dean. So I'm telling you, meet these guys. They're great. The professors are awesome. So McAfee School of Theology, thank you. And I know uh, it's okay because you know, even though we're from Denver, um, we're, you know, Isla people aren't going to be too upset with us for plugging another nah. No, we're good. So. My alma mater might because I don't plug them that often. But it's okay. We won't go there. Yeah. So if you like this episode, by the way, share it on the line. We are at Brew Theology at Facebook and Instagram. Brew underscore on Twitter, iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, Pocket Cast. Share it, love it, rate it, review it. And thank you again. Peace.